Hi, this is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats, the podcast that talks to boats. The episode that you are about to hear, J-Boats Speaks Again, is the follow-up to J-Boats Speaks, the lively fraternal session we refereed a few weeks back with Bob and Rod Johnstone, the founders of what must be given the recognition of being the most successful boat company in the modern era. The two-episode podcast has brought together the two brothers that founded J-Boats in a garage in Stonington, Connecticut in 1977. The siblings that launched the classic boat of the boomer generation, the J-24, and 5,600 copies later fashioned that design into the first step of building a line of nearly 50 designs a number of which we would consider modern classics. And having the two of them together on the podcast has been just plain fun. There is something about two brothers telling the same story a different way that we all find amusing. Check out Rod Johnstone's personal historical anecdote in the gallery for this episode. Thanks, Bob and Rod, for all that history and all that good humor. On a serious note, the two are highly decorated, including Mystic Seaports, the America and the Seas Award in 2016. But it's a first for Bob and Rod on a podcast. Recorded on an open mic, unedited, these sessions turn out to be a candid review of how they put together years of sailing classic and performance designs with an entrepreneur's flair to establish the iconic brand that is J-Boats. In part one of J-Boat Speaks, Rod told his own personal story of sailing in eastern Connecticut from thistles and 505s to offshore boats and how that convinced him to design a fast family boat. Armed with a Westlawn School of Design education acquired at night, he did his design work while selling ads for Soundings Magazine. The story of really and truly building his dream boat Ragtime, in the garage, set the scene for marketing brother Bob to do his thing. Bob filled the balance of J-Boat Speaks Part 1 with what he called the 12 principles of J-Boats, from design considerations to how to handle the boat dealer. J-Boats and the J-24 were a case study, 20 years in advance of viral marketing. Demand quickly outstripped the supply, being manufactured by Everett Pearson, the pioneer and original co-founder of Pearson Yachts, way back in 1957. Now, in part two, we're just going to sit back, stay out of the fray, and listen to the design-by-design review of what Bob Johnstone calls the, quote, four ages of J-boats, unquote. Phase one was, of course, the J-24 an all-world boat. Closely following was the J-30 for the family that, quote, wanted to live on their boat. I just really can't imagine living on a J-30, though. Bob and Rod riffed back and forth on the experiences of the original hardy J-boat owners from Long Island Sound to Michigan to Texas to the West Coast. The transition to the next J-boat age presented boats like the J-36 and J-35, both offshore and one design classes. One design innovation, J-34 
J-Boats championed scrimp, the use of infused carbon fiber in boats and spars. Today, an everyday feature in boat building, but a heady manufacturing move a quarter of a century ago. The next age saw the real radical change come with the sprit boat, epitomized by the J-105, one of the largest, if not the largest, offshore one designed today. The evolution of this design through the J-80 into the larger offshore J-120s and on set the standard for the industry in the 1990s and 2000s. Then, in 2012, the latest blockbuster came in the form of the J-70, the modern-day J-24, the fastest-growing class to 1,000 boats, now over 1,300 worldwide. The J-70 attracts the professional sailor and the family alike. But before we hear from Bob and Rod, word on our partners and the introduction of two new partners that we are very excited about. First, Spinsheet covering the Middle Atlantic region from Annapolis. We will be profiling a classic boat on the back page of their monthly magazine. Captain Nat Solarion rides again in this first issue. And as a bonus for spin sheet readers, they can access the Conversations with Classic Boats website from the QR scan on the magazine's page. Next, Scuttlebutt, rated as the top sailing blog in the world will be linking to our most recent episodes. Look for J-Boat Speaks, Part 1 and 2, via the Scuttlebutt site. Everybody knows where to find Scuttlebutt, right? Then, our old friends, Windcheck Media with Windcheck Magazine, covering the waterfront from New York to the Cape. Coming up in the June issue, we'll have a wrap-up of our four-installment series on the International Six Meter with all its iconic designs and colorful sailing characters. Check out the photographs, some terrific vintage photographs. And most important, the calendar should have already been marked for the Connecticut Boat Show, April 30 to May 2 at the Essex Island Marina. With a special May Boat Show Windcheck Magazine issue to follow, it will be an event. We'll be there fully vexed to meet you, the podcast fan. It's all on the website, windcheck.com. And of course, Mad Martha, whose Team One Newport carries in their email blasts the Conversations logo. Martha's back from the Southlands, Tampa and Charleston, and wants you to see the new North Foulweather Gear line, along with all the other performance gear you need. It's time for new crew gear too, right? You have to have 2021 on that hat. Check it all out in the Thames Street store and online. Team1Newport.com And now, with no further introduction required, Bob and Rod Johnstone take you through the four ages of the J universe. Okay, J boats went through three basic design periods to parallel their aging boomer franchise. The first period was family one design and racer cruisers following the J24 success between 1979 and 1983. And the first boat to follow 
the J24 was a J30 in 1979. What we were getting uh, from customers was, love that J24 adjustable fractional rig, one design, love the performance, but when are you guys gonna come up with a 30 footer so I can take my family vacation um, in the summer of a month and live on the boat? Rod? Yeah, well, that's what happened in Makatawa Bay. The, the first six people that bought the boats, they, Jim Sturzma and Terry Regan and, and four others, they parked the boats at the dock at the Makatawa Bay Yacht Club, their J-30s, and they lived on the boat with their boats with their kids. And, and uh, actually, Jim Sturzma decided he didn't want to have a head on his boat, so he, he's the only one, I, I don't think, that got a head. He put a porta potty on there and and then had it toted off the boat every day, you know, because he and his three kids, he and his wife and three kids lived on the boat. So tell them about the, uh, tell them about the uh, J-30 and Coleus and the SORC. Oh yeah, well that was, uh, uh, that was the SORC was, uh, we were the last boat out under the bridge. And well, first, the first race went to Boca Grande and, and the, the in our class, we finished something like seventh out of 10 boats. And I remember going up to the scoreboard and and somebody was, a few sailors were looking at the, at the scoreboard for the first race that we had, hadn't done very well in. And I remember hearing somebody say, who, who was standing there saying, I guess that I guess that guy Johnstone knows what designer's dumb luck is now. And that pissed me off enough. <laughs> to make sure we didn't lose. We finished third in our class in the SORC and it was the roughest SORC in the, in, on record, I think. And it was, the, we were the smallest boat in the fleet. That was 19 January and February of 1979. Are you telling me that you sailed, that you sailed from St. Petersburg to Miami in a J-30? Uh, from from, uh, from St. Petersburg to, um, to Fort Lauderdale. In a J-30? Yeah, and, and it started out really light. So, and we were the last class to start. So we were the last boat out under the bridge and guys for, that have bought boats from Makatawa Bay watched us go out last place behind the Tartan 10 and all the rest of the fleet was way ahead of us. And, and so it was really light air and a front came through that night blowing about 40 out of the, out of the Northwest. And we hoisted up our little chicken chute and we passed not only everybody in our class, but we passed everybody in the class ahead of us. Jeez. And the race where a guy got uh, killed on obsession when they, they jibed uh, the, one of the- Got uh, hit in the head, yeah. Got hit in the head, yeah. And, and it was the same leg going down to Rebecca Scholes. Uh, and that's where we passed everybody. And then the rest of the race was monstrous. We, we were going up the Gulf Stream past Key West and past all the, uh, all the uh, Keys going up to Fort Lauderdale. and. And we were out in the Gulf Stream because we wanted to be on the Gulf Stream to go with we're going with the current and we were dropping off 20 foot waves. And we were in, right in the middle of all this. And John Coleus, we he and I were the only two on deck at the point. He was steering and I had my legs wrapped around the, one of the stanchions on the rail, holding on for dear life. And John asked me, he said, hey, Rod, uh, how does this boat go in this stuff anyway? And he says, how do you think the boat goes in this stuff? I said, I don't know, John, I've never been out of this kind of stuff before. <laughs> and, 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 and the next the next part of that was Bob Bevere, uh, the America's Cup helmsman, 
acquired a J30 to sail on Long Island Sound. And then that, that year he, he said to Rod and me, when are you guys gonna come up with a boat that sails better in light air? Um, that the boat that I know of that goes really well is a 12 meter and it's got a taller rig and a fractional rig. And that was the birth of the J36. Take it away, Ron. Yeah, the, that, that, I mean, that was a fun boat. And, and we raced ours, that we won the Eastern Connecticut circuit with our J36 in, in 1981 of the offshore circuit. And, uh, and it was a, we always had a family crew. Uh, you know, we sailed with about usually six or seven people on the boat. And it was a, a nice boat to go cruising on. And, and my boat that I was sailing that summer uh, is still going strong here in, in, uh, in Mystic, Connecticut, uh, sailed by the Bruce Lockwood family descendants. I sold oh. the boat to 1982. Mm. I know that's that, that, boat, that boat was was a great success on the race course and it would in Long Island Sound, you know how the breeze comes up high and doesn't touch down. So it really made sense to have a hot tall rig and that boat would pick up that breeze and take off from any, all the lower masthead boats around it. So it was a mm -hmm. great boat. And we spent that 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 fall and that winter, we spent about a hundred thousand dollars in in advertising because we were so excited about it and didn't sell another boat because the, the market crashed. Um, PE ratios went down to six and seven across the board and the whole industry just, people weren't going to dealers and the whole industry stopped. So Rod and I at that point um, weren't making any money. We, we had to work for free and uh, at J-Boats and we we're scratching our heads and finally said, okay, well, we got to do something here, Rod, TPI, you keep telling me that TPI made the J32 heavy. That's why it didn't go well in light air. So why don't we just strip it out um, and see what, lower the deck, don't make it compete with the J30 um, by just having an empty J30. Just come, we'll come up with a new boat, lower deck, uh, same rig. Uh, maybe you can do something on the keel. And, and um, anyway, that was the birth of the J29. And what happened was uh, Rod came up with it. It was a beauty and take it away, Rod. Well, yeah, I mean, Bob calls me up on April Fool's Day in, in 1982 and asked me about, can we come up with a boat that could beat the, uh, beat the Olsen 30 at the Morsi Nationals and, and, and the, uh, the boats on the West Coast because they were having it at the Morsi Nationals in San Diego. And because and we didn't want to, we knew the J30 light air, and that's what they have in San Diego. So, so anyway, we just made it faster. We just uh, we didn't have to come up with a boat. We already had the boat. We just had to cut down the shear line, strip it out, put a put more, put more sail on it, which we did with a masthead rig. And at that point, at that point in time, that Morsi favored the masthead rig, even though we wanted to do a fractional rig. Well, what we did is we we also we, we did the fractional rig, it was the same as the J30 rig, except all we had to do was lower the boom nine inches. Otherwise it was exact same sail plan. We could lower the boom because we lowered the deck and everything else. So uh, it just turned into an incredible boat as whether it was fractional or, or masthead, but the masthead version was the only one competitive under Morsi because of the Morsi rule. And then, then what happened was 
we, we, we still had totally, what was good about it, as soon as we announced the J29 and the dealers announced it, people would come down to the dealerships and we hadn't sold a J30 in, in six or seven months. And all of a sudden we started selling J30s again, as well as J29s, because people then had the choice, do you want this race boat or do you want this family boat or more of a family boat that you can stand up and down below? But anyway, the other, the other problem that happened with this economic collapse was I got a call from Howie McMichael, who was our, one of our largest dealers. And he said, Bob, you guys have got to come up with a boat under $10,000 again. By this time, the J24 was up to about $14,000. And you've got to come up with a boat under $10,000. So Rod, what can we do? Go for it. That was the J22, by the way. Go ahead, Rod. Yeah, well, the, uh, the J22 was a, a great, uh, a great beginning for us with, uh, with uh, Eric Hall and Hall Spars because when we did the first boats on the, uh, we tested them out on the Sakonet River, and we we were they were competing for which one was going to put a mast on the boat. We had a mast scoped out from Kenyan Marine who had built all our masts up to that point, and then Eric Hall was was uh, Schaefer Spars and he was. He was, uh, he was, he was, he came up with a different section and we tested both sections and Eric won the competition. So we decided if we were, we decided from then on and on because just because of the section and, and because we, when we tested him out, his section proved better. But we decided at that point, when we started a new boat, we were going to, we were going to probably go with Hall Spars if, if, if Kenyon couldn't come up with the right spar. I mean, Kenyon did come up with the right spar on the, on the J. J35, but later on we switched to Hall Spars. So this, that in effect was the start of Hall Spars. Right. It was, it was almost like the start of Harkin uh, in offshore boats. I think the J24 was the first boat that used the Harkin blocks uh, that weren't on dinghies. And all of a sudden they just expanded into, into uh, larger and larger boats. But the next boat after the J22 was the J35 in 1983, both of these were 1983. And that was sort of a similar formula to the, um, the going from a J30 to a J29. We said, okay, we worked on the J29. We're still not selling any, haven't sold any J36s. So why don't we, the, the J36 was selling for, I think it was, what was it, 74,500 or something like that. And uh, so, we were able to knock it down to 49,005. And um, all of a sudden, and then we used the, the masthead, which seemed to be working best on the, uh, between the masthead and the fraction on the 29, made a masthead boat and it took off. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, well, well the, uh, the 35 was, uh, was actually uh, the, the J36, because we, we sold the boat all equipped. Whereas we sold the J35 pretty stripped out, so the 36 is 84,500. The 49.5 was what we what we and Bob figured it all out because just by taking it all, taking the bill of materials and deleting all the stuff we had on the J36 except for the engine and the head, and that and it always had to do with man hours. We weren't really cutting out that much of material, but it was the man hours we were cutting out that really made the big difference and made us so we could sell boats again. 
Well, I knew I knew the 35 was a really good boat and would take off pretty soon because I remember getting this call from I think it was um, a, a guy in uh, Rochester, Rochester, New York, or Youngstown. He said, "I'd like to buy a J35." I said, "Great." He said, "Don't you want to know why I want to buy it?" I said, "Well, sure." He said, "Well, there was this one guy in the in the the fleet who had a CNC something or other." And he couldn't get out of last place to save his life. He just got a J35 and he's winning every race. So I know it's a good boat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the next. So that. Are you going to jump forward to the Sprit boats at some point? Just so we oh, make sure we cover? Don't, 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 don't rush us here. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so no, there was another phase before that. Uh, the next phase was we, what we, we learned. It was a... Uh, brand loyalty study done by uh, yacht racing and cruising at the time that said that J-boats had, had the best brand loyalty, which was the intent to buy another J-boat. Um, and the, I asked to see the, the actual data that they got. And it showed of the 55 J-boat owners or something like that, that we only had an 80% brand loyalty index so I was really upset with that. I said, what did those other 20% traders do? And so I got them to give us, give me the data. And it showed that those 20%, which was, you know, five or six people in the survey were off buying 40 foot CNCs or Pearson's or some other cruising boat. So I, I said, to, you know, I said, okay, this is uh, your, your franchise is a function of the number of people coming in and the number of people you're losing afterwards. Well, we were losing 20% of our custom potential franchise to bigger boats. So that's when we, that's when we decided to come up with a, a, a 40 footer with all the bells and whistles. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, so the, to, to uh, emphasize that, I remember going to, when we first showed that in 1985 Newport Boat Show, being down below on the boat, showing people how well, well ventilated it was and all that kind of thing on a hot sunny day. And a little kid was out there with his, with his family and his father and he said, look dad, there's a J-boat with ventilators, with the raid ventilators. And that was a first for us. And it took a old kid to notice that that's a Newport boat. So anyway, the J-40 did really well. In fact, it, uh... As I recall, Rod had won the Mackinac. Hank Birnbaum with, with Stu on board. Didn't they do a pretty good job with that boat? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the boat did, did well, uh, you know, in, in offshore races because it, it was had a, it was very efficient. It was a fairly heavy boat, but, but in a straight line, it was, it was a very fast 40-footer. So it was tacking, short tacking around the buoys. It wasn't really a racing boat, but you got to go in a straight line. And a lot of our boats, like, later on were the same way, like the J-160. Well, the next boat after the J-40 was the J-44. And, and the re reason that came about was we were looking for a follow-up design, cruising design. And so the, 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 the think, thought process went, well, let's see what it should be. And wouldn't it be a good indication be what most people were sailing on the Bermuda race in the 1980, I guess the 1986 Bermuda race. Um, and so I looked at all the entries and sure enough, the biggest, biggest group was between about 42 and 46 feet. 
Um, so that seemed like a, a good target. Um, and actually 45 feet was the average, but we thought that 45 feet would sound too intimidating um, to, to the average person. So let's, even though the boat was going to be 45 feet, let's call it a 44 feet. Go ahead, Ron, a 44. And that was meant to be an IMS, our, our, our boat that would do well under the IMS rule. Yeah, that's something I've, I've always interested. It never seemed that you guys were too concerned about designing to a rule, okay? Not, not then. It was, uh, it was the perfect boat for the IMS rule at the time. It was the, the people that came after us, after our boats did so well at Key West Racing Week, we had a fleet of like seven or eight of them yeah. um, that um, they, they- We've they, got about 10 minutes, 10 minutes to cover 30 years, Bob. So I'd really love to just sort of focus on the sprit boats and get the thought process of that because that was such a big change. Okay, well, that's, that's where we're coming next here. Well, anyway, to finish up the 44, it did so well. It was the first class to be, uh, to sail as a class in the Bermuda race, the first design ever to sail as a one design class in the Bermuda race and also won the Fastnet and the New York Yacht Club Queens Cup. So it was a great boat. Um, okay, the fourth, the fourth stage of J-Boat's history was caused by another economic downturn or what, yep. that, in the marine industry, which was the luxury tax. And the luxury tax said that any boat, car, or, or airplane that cost more than $100,000, you'd have to pay a 10% tax on. And the sailing industry just went, <laughs> stop. So we had a meeting. Um, I remember it in our condo in Newport with our dealers and Everett and us trying to scratch in our heads, what can we do? And so the discussion was, should we come up with a cheap 30 foot cruising boat? Or should we come up with a, an exciting boat that people, the, the, the wealthy people are gonna buy them anyway, uh, could buy with pocket change, but since it was under $100,000, they wouldn't get their employees who they were firing and letting go and so on and so forth upset. They weren't buying a big fancy boat. It was just, you know, one of these little things. So that's when we took what had, what had started um, as a, that Sun Peter had launched as a dinghy, a one design 14 with a retractable sprit uh, and an asymmetric spinnaker. We said, well, that wouldn't that make sense for people in, a, in larger boats like cruising boats because it's tough for two people to sail a J36 with a big spinnaker and they may set it in five knots of breeze but then when it starts blowing 15 who's going to get it down um so anyway we we discussed that and decided on a um on trying a sprit boat that was about the same size as a J35 but it would take less crew I, the target was less crew and a sail limitation because J35s, you know, you had to have 10 sails and 10 crew to be competitive. And um, let's, then what are we going to call it? Well, we're not going to call it the uh, sport boat or anything because we wanted to use the J. We pretty well used up all the feet. So let's go decimeters. Then people, when they had a cocktail party, when they bought a 105, that you, 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 where'd you get the scratch to buy a 105 footer? No, no, it's decimeters. 
So anyway, right. that's, that's the background. Rod, go ahead. Yeah, well, anyway, B-105 was a uh, sort of a scaled down version of what I had designed for Peter Blake and, and Stuart Johnstone over in England. We were going to do a Whitbread boat for the 19 or for the 1993 Whitbread race. And we had the boat all designed. We had some great meetings over there. And it was Peter Blake was also suggesting that we put a uh, retractable bowsprit on it. And uh, so uh, we had we, we got pretty far along in the design, but again, it was a it was a recession. This is 1991. We're talking about same the same year, and we didn't get any takers on the boat. But it was a great project, and 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 uh, and I think the, the thing that and then Peters was was doing it with his little boat, and the thing that made it possible was Everett Pierce had figured out a way to uh, to filament wind a carbon fiber for uh, freedom mass for, for, for freedoms that he was building. And he was able to do a, a fairly economical carbon fiber pole that was precise enough so you could slide it back and forth through a tube. And, and that, all, that sort of all came together and made it possible for us to, to, to do this boat and do the, spinner, the asymmetric spinnaker, which we, it took us another three or four years to perfect That's, that idea, the sail itself, because the initial one we did was too small. I can remember Bob and I sailing in a double-handed race and a Stanford Vineyard race, which we we uh, we did really well. I mean, we we played the we played the mainland shore all the way up to uh, the Buzzard Tower, and we we beat most of the big boats to the Buzzard Tower. But then coming back downwind, we had more problems, and we lost our newfangled GPS overboard going through. <laughs> but we. Uh, we were duking it out with much bigger boats, uh, even with this teeny little 77 square meter spinnaker that we had. And uh, we learned a lot. We've learned a lot as we went along there. Well, well, boat, let, that, let me give boat, you a, yeah, go ahead. That boat, that boat really changed the entire sailboat industry um, because now just about every large and small boat has a sprit of some kind. Um, most of the small ones have the retractable sprits. And the J-105 was the first one boat over 20 feet um, to, to carry such a device. And, um, and, it, and the J-105 itself has become the most popular large one design keelboat in the world. Yeah. How, how many 105s are built? Huh? How many 105s? 600. Almost 700. Yeah, 683. Yeah, we got a couple more. We have a couple more minutes just to. I, we're not. We're not going to get you to the 21st century. I can see that. I think we're going to have another session on the 21st century of J boats, and of course we couldn't not do justice without talking about the J70, which itself is, I think, a, you know, a real, a real uh, marquee boat. Let, let me let me let me slide into that one with the J80 in 1993. We were looking for a, a boat that was more comfortable for a crude attack than a J24. They could just sort of stroll across to, from one curved comfortable tank to the other and not have to be going over the top of, a, of the deck, um, which is pretty uncomfortable. Yep. And also the J-80 was the first all scrimp infused sailboat. Um, to, and we wanted to compete with the Melgis 24, which had come out by that time. So that was our initial small um, sprint boat. And Going into the um, the next phase, 
skipping over a bunch of other good sprit boats like the 120, the 160. Um, the J70 was a, re a reduction, or, or let's say not a reduction, it was a, a repeat of, of our small boat success in the J24, combining everything we'd learned up to that time. That was 2012. So everything we learned learned prior to then, we applied, it was applied to that J70, um, which then became the US and European boat of the year. Go ahead, Rod, on the 70. Well, yeah, J70, uh, and it was the first, it was the first uh, boat we did that was a, a retract with a retractable keel. And uh, that really made, made it possible to, and we deliberately obviously wanted to be able to have a trailer bull and also fit in a container, so fit two of them in a 40 foot container we can do. And uh, so there were some limitations, but it didn't stop us from uh, you know, following through on the concept of a boat that the family could sail on and be a stiff boat. It's uh, a lot stiffer than the J24 or J22. Uh, you can single hand it. I single handed mine back from Block Island uh, in 25 knots of air uh, upwind. No problem. The boat, you just can depower it so easily. Uh, it's definitely, a, it was definitely a generational boat. I'm, I'm not sure it's a millennial boat. I mean, like well, the J24 was a boomer boat. There you have it, J-Boat Speaks, part one, part two. All of their secrets, all of the tricks of the trade that made their way into business school cases. And as I said, when I toted up my own personal portfolio of days sailed in certain boats, I'm embarrassed to say that there are way more J-Boat days than the brand of boats that my own family was associated with. Here's my own personal scorecard on J-Boats. First, J sailed. J24, 777. Boats sailed on from the 48 to 50 models. J24, J29, J80, J30, J33, J35, J40, J100, J105, J109, J44, J120, J122, J111, J95, J92. That's roughly a third of the fleet by my accounting. My favorite, the J33, the pocket rocket sized J35. How many J days are on your dance card, conversations audience? Tell me at my email at tcdforsale2 at gmail.com. Send it along with your comments and suggestions. And remember to subscribe, tell a friend, wherever you get your podcasts, and on the website www.conversationswithclassicboats.com. Thanks to Bob, Rod, and you, the listener, for participating in this experiment in the long-form interview. We'll try it again with the right players. Make sure that you look at those great home photos in the gallery in part one of the origins of ragtime, the J24, the prototype literally in the garage.
We hope that we'll have seen you, the Conversations Podcast fan, at the Connecticut Boat Show, April 30 to May 2, at the Essex Island Marina in Essex, on the Connecticut River. We all hope we are sailing again normally in the third quarter. Stay safe and keep someone else safe if you can. We'll be back with two episodes going back to the woodies between now and 4th of July, which is our target for normalcy in the boating world. This podcast is written by Tom Darling and produced by Ned Darling in New York City. Thanks again for listening to Conversations with Classic Boats. And come back and listen to the podcast that talks to boats. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all hang.